Well, greetings in Christ's name to each one of you. Uh, it's a blessing and a privilege to be here with you. Uh, it's a blessing and a privilege to preach the Word of God. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and uh, we are departing briefly from our John study, John chapter 3, where I've been. Um, I've been, um, I feel like I've been led, I should say, to this passage in John, in Acts 20. This past Wednesday night, we were exhorted by one of the brothers to get into the Word of God, and uh, we were um, exhorted to consider, um, to be intentional about what the Word of God means for us, and I want to preach out of this chapter out of this portion of scripture in Acts 20 beginning in verse 17. And if you're familiar with this passage, um, one of the reasons I'm here is because it, it deals with uh, church leadership and I have a burden, I think, that you would, that the church would um, know what to expect from us as elders, that you would have some measurement whereby you can evaluate how we're doing. And in Acts 20, uh, let, me, let me begin by reading uh, Acts 20. This is a lengthy portion of Scripture, and for our... For the purpose of our study, I want to read all of all of this portion of Scripture from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. But I'm, I will be focusing specifically on verse 32 then, uh, at some point, uh, by, by God's grace. But it's a lengthy portion, so I want, you to, I want to read this because it's a package deal. It's a package deal, and the name of this... Uh, or the title of my sermon this morning would be Biblical Church Priorities. And I hope you will see why I've titled it this way, because when you have expectations for your elders, when you have expectations for church leadership, we hope that they are biblical expectations. We hope that you measure us by the Scripture that you have some sort of guideline about what you expect from your, your elders. Uh, what, uh, what is that standard of measurement? So let's read in Acts 20, beginning in verse 17. From Miletus, he, as Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. 
how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy." And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So a very, a very poignant narrative. Just a very intense piece of literature right there. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful passage of Paul's care for them. Um, just a little bit of background. This account in Acts 20, this happened on Paul, as Paul was returning to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey. So he had he'd been gone from Jerusalem and Antioch in Syria. Um, actually, that's where that journey had started in Antioch of Syria. And we read of that, if you just flip back in Acts 18, in verse 23, we see where this missionary journey started. Um, Paul had visited Ephesus on his second missionary trip, Briefly, it doesn't seem like he spent a lot of time at Ephesus uh, on it prior to um, this third visit, or this on it prior to this this third missionary journey. But on his third trip, now Paul came overland to Ephesus from 
Antioch in Syria, and he journeyed through Galatia and Phrygia and ministered to the disciples there. And then he came overland to, uh, to Ephesus, and it was the chief um, city in uh, Asia Minor there. And it was, a, it was an important trade city. It was, uh, you know, it was a, a large city. And Acts 19 records his ministry in Ephesus. And it even gives us specific details, like he spent three months you know, teaching in the synagogue of the Jews there. And then two years, after, well, after the Jews you know, basically didn't want to listen to him, he taught for two years in the, in the school of one Tyrannus in the city of Ephesus. So in our passage that I just read, he spent three years, he says, in Ephesus. We have record of, two, of, of a three-month period and of a two-year period. And where the other nine months come in, I'm not sure. Maybe it was the journey before this or just time spent that was not added up in these two uh, specific details about three months and then the two years. But following the uproar that occurred in the city of Ephesus about Diana of the Ephesians, that's in chapter 19, and how that whole city was just in a fur because of the silversmith who was saying, look, this, this way is going to ruin our trade. If this continues, we're not going to have a, a, a trade because you know, we're not going to be making these little statues anymore. And so that after that uproar, Paul left for Macedonia in Greece and had originally intended to sail from there back to Caesarea in Judea and, and conclude his journey that way. But then the Jews plotted against him. It seemed like, and you read of this, uh, the Jews plotted against him, I think it is in... Uh, um, I did not write the reference down, but they plotted against him and he changed his travel plans to where he went back up over um, through Macedonia again and came back to, um, he was over traveling overland. Anyway, as he was traveling back to Jerusalem, he was sailing past Ephesus. And this is where we pick up the narrative here in verse 16 of chapter 20. And just note that because of his travel plans being and he changing, he was delayed. In Acts 20 and verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So there is a, there's a story here. There's a, there's a line. There's a narrative here of a, of a man who has plans, a schedule. He has things happening. He has a change of plans. And, and so we come to, uh, when he comes to Miletus, he says, look, I, I don't want to stop at Ephesus, but I want to see these Ephesian elders one more time. He sends to them and tells them, come to me in Miletus. We want to have a meeting. And so the text today records what went down at that meeting. Um, 
That distance that these elders had to travel would have been about 30 miles one way from uh, Ephesus to Miletus. And, uh, you know, how they did that, you know, obviously it was an undertaking for them to travel 30 miles in that day and age. But they, Paul requests their presence and they came down uh, to Miletus from Ephesus for this meeting. And that's what we have recorded here, what Paul said to them. For us, these almost 2,000 years later, this has become, so to speak, the elders' manifesto. This, this record of what Paul gave to the Ephesian elders as a, as a word to, to church leadership, this, this text is such a, a beautiful text of what is expected for us. Herein is contained the aim and priority and purpose of those who lead, the most unique and actually the greatest society in all the world, the church, as we heard this morning about we are a chosen people, we are a peculiar people, we are a a royal priesthood. And so we have this word coming to us as leaders, as elders, who lead this great society. And I remember, uh, this. I preached through this expositionally in Haiti probably about almost nine years ago. It was the last message at a pastor training conference that I was a part of that I, I had this, this text that I went through not only to, to tell them and bring them this word to, I think it was something like 50 to 70 pastors, that I wanted to show them what a New Testament elder, the weight that is on him, and also show them how to preach expositionally from this passage. So it was more than one thing going on. But that was, but I re, when I was studying this passage, I remembered that I had uh, preached in the past from this passage. And it, it's this, this portion of Scripture has been a, such a blessing to me um, for my own life. And so while it is addressed to church leadership, its precepts and directives are important for all the church. You know, for, for how shall you measure our ministry if you know not our mandate? How do you know how we are doing? And how shall we receive what you bring to us and the concerns that you might have for us if they don't line up with what we, well, the weight that we feel is on us from the Scripture? So I, I want to present this to you And remember that it is addressed to church leadership, church elders, but it has a very real and pertinent um, work to do in the congregation. So um, as we consider that, I want to speak to you from this text in three headings. Number one, I I want to speak to you about Paul's passion. Paul's passion. And those, if, if you want a text for that, if you're taking notes, uh, Paul's passion, you could, you could read that from verse 17 through 27, and then verses 33 through 38. And under this first heading, I want to divide it into two points. I want to show you Paul's passion for his ministry in his practice and in his proclamation. 
we have a lot said about Paul's practice and a lot said about his proclamation. But when these elders, when these elders arrive at Miletus, Paul immediately refers them to his practice or his manner of life. Notice what he says. You know, he says to them, you know this. You know that from the first day that I was among you, what manner of man I was. You know from the first day that I came to Asia, he says, how I always lived among you. And notice what he says that, how he defines that. Their first encounter with Paul was that his life was marked by serving the Lord with all humility. This was his practice. He had a humility about him, serving the Lord with humility. Notice when we think about Paul's uh, personality, his, his passion is evident. Notice what he says next, that he served them with, with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Paul's passion is evident in his emotions. Three references to, here in this text to weeping. He, he says he, he was among them with, with many tears in, in, here, in verse, uh, here in verse 19. And, um, and then also in verse, in verse 30. And then at their parting. Paul was, very, was a very... Um, he, he, his, his ministry is marked with feeling, with compassion, with, with earnestness. Paul's practice was one of, of genuine care and, and, and ministry. Paul's passion for Christ was tested. His zeal, for instance, endured the many plottings of the Jews. Here in, uh, in verse, in verse uh, 30, in verse 19. <clears throat> I have to say, my contact's not working this morning. Um, so Paul's emotion is very evident, and his, his passion for Christ is, um, is tested. His passion for Christ did not dim, even as he anticipated troubles to come. Notice verse 22 through 24. How, when he's describing how I go um, bound in my spirit to Jerusalem, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me there. But I have a clear word in every city that I come to. The disciples are telling me, don't go there. You know, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying their chains and tribulations await me. How that he was anticipating that more trouble was coming to him, but his passion was undimmed. Notice how he says, that's nothing to me. I am completely unmoved by this. This is, this is just amazing. That he was so sold out for his work for Christ that it, didn't, it did not phase him to, to know that he was walking right into a trap. That the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. 
Now, right there is the secret. Brothers and sisters, there's, this man is so sold out to Christ, to the work of Christ, that his life means nothing to him. I, I don't count myself, my life dear to me. Why does he not do that? So that I may finish my race with joy. You know, if, if his life were dear to him, that would conflict with, with, with Christ calling upon him. And, and it would conflict with what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in him. And if you think about how that if when we are holding back something, you cannot be joyful when you do that. Because joy, notice what he says, that I may finish my race with joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit of God. And when you are walking in the will of God, you will be joyful. There will be a fruit that comes out of that. But if your life is dear to you, and the Spirit calls you to go to Jerusalem, and you know that chains and tribulations await you there, and you don't want to go, and you are dragging your feet, and you are complaining, there will not be joy in your life. Joy comes from not caring about what God is going to do to your life. You are committed to the work of God regardless. Paul was unmoved. As we consider Paul's passion in his practice, I want to point out to you that Paul's service to the Lord included his laboring hands. This word laboring means to feel fatigued, to work hard, to to become tired at his work. Notice what he says in verse... um, 34, yes, you yourselves know. Here he goes again. Guys, you know. You know what manner of life I have lived among you. You know yourselves that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me, not only for mine, but for those who were my traveling companions, who were my ministry companions. I have shown you in every way. Notice the... Notice the... uh, the declaration that I've shown you this in all ways, every way, by laboring like this that you must support those who are not as strong as you are. You must be willing to bring people with you. You must care for them. You must build them up. I have shown you that you must support the weak. Remember that here is the apostle giving his last words to church leadership. I have shown you in every way you must support the weak. Notice another thing that I I want to point out. What he quotes here uh, that the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed, he said, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't know where that was said. This This is something that that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, recorded for us. It's not recorded in the gospel anywhere that the Lord Jesus said this. But I want to point out, Paul, his practice was in finding direction in the words of the Lord Jesus. What he is doing here is he's pointing out, brothers, as you lead this church, Remember the words that Jesus said, that it is more blessed to serve or to give than it is for you to receive. 
This is in support of what he is saying. You must support the weak. Notice then, lastly here, as we consider Paul's practice, notice in this meeting, he kneels down with them and he prays with them all. A beautiful picture that the Apostle Paul is making a declaration of dependence right in front of these church leaders that he is instructing. And then he just humbles himself and kneels down with them and prays for them. He brings another person into the meeting. It's a beautiful picture of humility, of dependence. And he says, come, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord. Let's let's." Let's appeal to God. He brought another person into the, into the meeting. Remember the words of the Lord to Ananias in Acts 9 about this man. You remember that? What the Lord himself said to Ananias about Paul. He says, go see him. For he, for behold, he is praying. Behold, he is praying. Here was Paul's practice, a practice of praying. Well, let's continue. Let's continue with uh, the second part of this first point. Paul's passion in his proclamation. Here is Paul's true mission. His, what he is proclaiming. He, is, he has a mission to proclaim. Notice what he says. And, and by the way, his practice basically just gave him a context. Uh, to, to proclaim out of. He, his practice was, was so, that, so that his words bore more weight. You know, if his practice wouldn't, wouldn't mark or would not measure up to his message, then how well would it be received? So, so his proclamation was his primary mission, but his practice had to, be, um, had to measure up. But notice what he says and in, uh, in verse 19, or actually in verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful. Nothing that was helpful to you, but proclaimed it to you. And he proclaimed it and taught. I proclaimed and taught you. Notice how he keeps on going here, saying, I taught you publicly and privately. I taught you in the public square. I, I visited you in your homes. I went from house to house teaching and proclaiming everything that was helpful for your faith. And he did it in all venues. Whenever he had an opportunity, he was doing this proclamation, this teaching. He was not only doing it in all venues, but he was doing it to all people. Notice that there was no partiality with Paul here. He says, uh, he says here that he was testifying, in verse 21, to Jews and also to Greeks. It didn't matter who it was. All he needed was, was, was warm bodies. He, he wanted somebody in front of him. And when he, when he had somebody in front of him, it didn't matter whether it was here or whether it was at home. He was testifying. He was proclaiming. He was teaching what was helpful to them. And here then is what he said. 
Here was the message. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he just sums up the gospel. Repent and turn in faith toward Christ. Repent toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is another way to say it. Testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Notice verse um, when Paul describes his, his ministry, you know, he, he says first that it was helpful, and then, and then he talked about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord. And then in verse 24, he says, in describing his ministry, which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see that? Paul describes his ministry as simply testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It is God's grace. That is what the gospel is. The declaration of God's grace to man. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's not make this complicated. God has been good to us. And you're telling people how good God has been to us. You're declaring the gospel when you do that. The gospel of the grace of God. Here's another way Paul defines his message. Verse 25, I have gone preaching. Notice that. Verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. You see how he defines it again in another way. I am talking about the lordship of Almighty God and how that He is a King of kings and Lord of lords and, and that He has a kingdom and I'm preaching to you the kingdom of God. It's another way to, to uh, define Paul's work. Paul's passion in his proclamation. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then yet again, he describes it in another way. Do you see Paul's passion in his proclamation? He says in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. See, there's another way that Paul is defining his message, his proclamation, his ministry, his work. The whole counsel of God. Five different ways that in this short little portion of Scripture that Paul defines his proclaiming work. Five ways. First, it was helpful. Then it was the teaching of repentance and faith toward God. And then it was testifying to the gospel. And then in... in, It was, I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. And lastly, I have given you the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has for you, I have declared it to you. This is a mark, brothers and sisters, of a passion for his work. Paul was so gifted with words. He, in this short little passage, he he uses So many different ways and phrases to say the same thing. That's a mark. When a man is on fire for the Lord, he is creative. He is passionate about his work. He is about proclaiming. Paul's passion in his proclamation. He was creative in how he spoke to these 
Ephesians elders. I mean, think about it. You have to be creative. If you're going to pull an all-nighter, if you just go back a few verses in this very chapter, and you see Paul in action. Granted, the guy fell asleep, but he must have had a hard day. He, he fell asleep and fell out the window. But then he, Paul goes down there and raises him back to life. Isn't that, that's, that's incredible. And then he speaks until daylight. He speaks until daylight. Notice what he says there. If you just go back to uh, verse 11 of chapter 20. Now, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while. (laughs) Don't you just love it? Paul just talked a long while. You think an hour is tough? I would like to challenge you. How would... How much time do you spend, would you spend more time over a steak than over a sermon? That steak is just feeding that little tent that you're living in. The sermon is dealing with your house in heaven. Paul in action. But remember, Paul was giving his last words to the people at Troas. They're in when the man fell out the window. And here, to the Ephesian elders, it's the same way. Paul says, you will see my face no more. Think about the weight. This, if you had one word to say, we just can't hardly fathom that you could be in the presence of somebody and you will never see their face again or speak to them again. In this day when you can email, when you can phone, when you can do all these texting... You know, we have instant communication. Not so in, the, in this day 2,000 years ago. When he says, you will see my face no more, that means you will not hear from me again. You, did you see the emphasis that this is bearing down on, on this particular text of Scripture and how this reflects the priority of the New Testament church and what the elders needed to hear? You will see my face no more. And then lastly, under this heading, we see Paul's speaking ministry as a ministry of warning. Notice verse 30, 31. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with great feeling, with tears. I did not cease to warn. I see the passion of his speaking ministry. Just incredible here. Well, let's continue. Secondly, so we, we speak about Paul's passion. Paul's, and Paul's demonstrated in his practice and his proclamation. Now we see Paul's plea. Paul's plea to these Ephesian elders. Where is, you know, what is Paul's exhortation to these guys? Well, let's let's read verse 28 through 31. Therefore, because of this, 
Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among you, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things or misleading things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Well, therefore, take heed. One Greek word that simply means what it says. Take heed, pay attention, to hold your mind here. You know, it has that that, the the thought of being sober-minded, thinking clearly. To hold the mind, to pay attention here. Be cautious about this. Attend oneself to this. We would say, give priority to this. Focus, focus, focus. That's how we would kind of, you know, this is important. You take heed first to yourselves. And then to all the flock. I want to point out something that is really interesting here. Notice the Trinitarian purpose in verse 28. For, no, notice the Trinitarian purpose for paying attention here. The Holy Spirit's appointment to shepherd God's church, which He bought with the blood of His Son. No one should be an elder in God's church without some sense of the weight of verse 28. No one. So you have Paul's exhortation that, look, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers in God's church, bought with the blood, His own blood, He says. But we know that this is the blood of the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said in the introduction, there is no society like this one. None. You might say, that we're lowly people, and we are. But we are the apple of God's eye. And any elder that doesn't have a sense of that should not be an elder. If he doesn't have a sense that we're dealing with people whom Christ has died for, then he shouldn't be an elder. There is no society like this one, brothers and sisters, for the grace of its plan, for the price of its purchase, for the length of its days, for the blessing of its subjects, for the scope of its work, for the sufficiency of its charter, for the glory of its master. There is none greater, nor ever will be, 
There is none greater and none grander, nor ever will be, than the church of Jesus Christ. None. You know, I had to think of America the beautiful. Hmm. How long has it been since 1776? How long has it been since the church was inaugurated? 2,000 years. How long will the church continue? For endless days we will sing God's praise. For endless days. America, brothers and sisters, is going downhill. You might as well accept it. We might lament it. But I'm part of a much better kingdom. Get over your allegiance to America. You have a much greater allegiance. Here, I trust we don't hold God and country in the same place. No, we have a glorious, glorious society. We have an, we, we, we have an unfathomable greatness. Why? Because of Christ. You know, sometimes we don't we don't spend enough time on the greatness of the church. But I I hope and pray that your leaders have a sense of the grandeur of what God is doing in this little group right here. Paul's plea for the elders is grounded in the great investment of God's grace in Christ to the church. Paul's plea is for them to feed what God bought. Should we neglect to feed that which was bought by the blood of Christ? Well, God forbid. Then he goes on where he says here, for I know. Paul just says, I know. I know. I know in my absence, savage wolves will come. And they won't spare you. They will destroy what they can. Savage wolves will come in from outside. Paul says there's danger from out, from outside. And then he says, and danger from inside. Danger from inside. You know, let me just say this, that most times danger from inside is a danger that comes speaking. It's a danger that comes speaking. And just in a nutshell, the speaker wants a following. He draws men not after Christ, but after himself. This is the danger that we have from within. Paul says, therefore, watch. And remember, you Ephesian elders, how I watched. 
See, that's the emphasis that he says here. You watch and remember as you're watching that I used to watch for three whole years, night and day, speaking, warning, with tears, pleading, begging, exhorting, admonishing people to hear me. Remember when you are tired of your work that remember my example to you. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not stop. I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Amazing. Well, number three, Paul's presentation and promise. Paul's presentation and promise. Everything I said until now was just so I could preach to you from this verse, verse 32. I'm now officially done with my introduction. Verse 32, by the way, brothers and sisters, is why I'm in this passage. Verse 32 is why I'm here. So now, brethren, I want us to take this verse and meditate on on, on it this week. Verse 32 is a summation of what Paul wanted to tell the Ephesian elders. Everything led up to verse 32. All that he was saying in the past about how I lived among you, what I taught among you, my example to you, the exhortation I give to you, it all led up to his final words. This represents the exhortation that Paul is willing to leave and and say, I have... I have declared the whole counsel to you. I have no blood on my hands. I have told you what you need to know. So now, brethren, and now, it says in the old King James, and now, brethren, in light of my departure, in light of my passion, in in light of my practice and proclamation, in light of my plea to you, Because of danger without and danger within. Here is my last word to you. My parting exhortation. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This word commend. This, this, I commend you. This word is a compound Greek word that means that it's paratithemy. Okay, it means to place alongside. It means to, to present. So now, brethren, I present you to God. I lay you alongside. I give you to God. I, I present you by implication to deposit as a trust or for protection. I present you to God and the word of His grace. 1 Peter 4.19 uses this same word, but it's translated differently. Let me read it for you. 1 Peter 4.19 says this way, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. I present you, I commit you, to God for safekeeping. 
Well, how does God keep his children safe? How does God keep his children? By the ministry of the word of God. Notice who Paul does not commend them to. He does not commend them to apostolic succession. He does not commend them to a prophet. In a sense, here in this passage, he does not even commend them to the church. And I want to be careful with that because God has given us to the church and the church to us for our mutual benefit. But here, he does not commend them to the church's traditions or regulations, but to God. He commends them to God and to God's means of safekeeping. Notice Paul's beautiful description of Scripture. Do you see that? I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. See, if you don't have a good sense of your need, you're not going to be built up very well. You're just not. This word of grace, that's what this is. God's word is a message of His grace for us and of our need for it. If we don't have a good handle on how much we need grace, we're not going to be in this word. I present you, I command you, I commit you to God and to His safekeeping, and that is by means. God uses means for His work in us. The word of His grace. The Bible is the account of God's gracious dealings with sinful humanity. Paul commits them to God and His word. So it's the presentation of us to the Word of God. And then Paul makes a promise. Which is able. Which is able. He promises to them of the Word's sufficiency. The Word is sufficient. Which is able. From the same family of words we get the word power from. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. For it is the power of or the gospel of Christ, is the power of God into salvation. It's that word, dynamos, where we get dynamite from. It's explosively able. It's overpoweringly able. It's sufficient. The, the word is not impotent. It is not weak. It is able. It has power. It has the resources to build you up. You know, your enemy wants to tear you down. You know that your environment has constant wear and tear on your spiritual life. It does. Constant wear and tear on your spiritual life. And sin will tear you down. You know, the influence of the culture is having a tearing a down effect on us. Constant bombardment. It's like the wind blowing 
constantly, the sun beating down. The environment is hard on buildings. It, it fades the paint. It blows off the shingles. It finally, we have an old house that was just knocked down this week, close to our house. And it was tumble down. It wasn't maintained, you see. God has seen fit to give you the Word of God for your maintenance. Your maintenance. There is no other means for you to maintain your faith except through the Word of Almighty God. And whether that Word is preached, whether you read it, whether you meditate on it, whether you sing it, whatever. It is the Word of God which is able to not only maintain your faith, but to build it up. You know, you can literally put an addition on your house. It's not just to maintain what meager faith you have. No, it's so that you grow up. It is so you build up your faith. Paul's promise is to us that the word of God's grace is able. Able to enlarge the edifice of our faith. Able to enlarge the borders of your, of your influence. Able to glorify God through your life. Able to build up so that you can teach your children in the faith. It is more than just you uh, surviving. No, the Word of God is able to cause you to thrive. And, and it is meant for you to, to rest in God's provision for us. The Word of God is sufficient The Word is able to build you up. The Word of God had so built up Paul. Let's look at Paul. That nothing moved him from serving the Lord. We have it right here in this text. Paul doesn't care whether he lives or he dies. Just as long as Christ is glorified in his life. You see that? I am not moved by chains or tribulations or anything or whatever. That is the sort of building up that the Word of God does for us. Well, brothers and sisters, how is the church of God built? How is the church of God built? It is built, brothers and sisters, by individual members receiving and applying the Word of God by faith. You cannot build your faith without the Word of God. You cannot build the church without the Word of God. And, I, and that was redundant. I just repeated myself. Do you get it? Because you and I are the church. You cannot build the church without you individually building your faith through the exercise and the ministry of the Word of God. And if you are wanting a church, what are you expecting from, from Brother Chris and I? I can't make you believe. That is your responsibility. What we can do. 
we can give you the Word of God. And we can preach it with authority, with compassion, with care. And so Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders reflect the biblical church priority. The ministry of the Word of God, the primacy and the sufficiency of the Word of God for all of church life and health. That's what Paul is saying. I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. You build your faith. Well, What are you doing to maintain and build up your faith and testimony for Christ? There's only one thing to do. Let's make this simple. Give attention to the Word of God. Give attention to God's Word. It is able to build you up. Notice what is left here. It builds you up in your most holy faith. And it is able to give you an inheritance. You know, that is amazing. It is able to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You may wonder what your inheritance will be. Well, you know, um, notice that all heirs are family members. They're sanctified. You've got to be a family member. I mean... When, when the father's going to divide his riches, he's not going to give it to Satan's children. He's not going to do it. You're going to have to be set apart. That's what this, that word means, sanctified. And he's, Paul says, I promise that the word of God is able to give you an inheritance among all the rest of God's children. And that when you are in the company of God's children and the, and the inheritance gets gets divided, the Word of God is able to include you in that, in that great list. He is able, it is able to give you an inheritance. The Word is able. It is able to give you a possession. In Acts 26 and verse 18, I want to read this as we close here. But in, he says that when Paul describes his, his, um, his ministry in front of King Agrippa. And he, in verse 18 of Acts 26, he says, To open the eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive, and think about the gospel of the grace of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And not only that, not only are you, do you have a clean slate now, but now, he says, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the Word of God is able to give you a possession. And I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that this is speaking of our reward. Notice what he says, and I'll just read this for you, in Colossians 3, in verse 23 and 24, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ.
You know, this word build up is the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 3 about who, if you build on this foundation. You know, and there it goes on to say that if, if you build on it with hay, with hay and straw and wood, you know, the fire of God's judgment is going to burn it up. I mean, you are going to suffer loss. You know, your reward is going to... But if you build on it with gold, silver, and precious stones, which is obedience to God's Word, you're going to have a reward. That, brothers and sisters, is how the Word of God is able to give you a possession. It is access. It is by faith, you see. There's going to be degrees of reward. 10,000 years from now, just as sure as you are in here, if you're genuinely converted, 10,000 years from now, you're going to be enjoying your reward, and it is determined by your obedience to the Word of God today. Your reward is proportional to your faith in God's Word. That should motivate us. That should get us up off the couch and into the Word of God. Or maybe you need to stay on the couch a little longer and get your Bible on the nightstand beside the couch or on the, on, on the end table beside the couch so that you can, you can spend more time in the Word of God. Some of us work too much. Yes, you will still be enjoying what you procured for yourself in your earthly life, you see. In your faith here, applying the Word of God to your life in obedience. As Paul says, nothing moves me. You see that you are completely dependent on God and the Word of His grace. But on the other hand, you're dependent on nothing else. Isn't that wonderful? You can rest that God has given you what you need. God has given you what you need. And you need nothing else. The problem is, sometimes we think we need something else. And sometimes... For church elders, for church leaders, we hear these things. Are you willing to make biblical priorities the priorities for Believer's Chapel? Or do you want fluff? It's your call, largely. But I believe for us, when you see... Verse 28 of Acts 20. And you feel the weight of that. We can't, we can't as Martin Luther says, here I stand. I, I can do no, no less. You know? So, hear my heart. And thank you for hearing me out. And so now, brethren, 
I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God bless.